it is my intent to preach through the book of Romans. So whenever I'm up here, um, given the opportunity to preach, that's where I'll be coming from. It's been said that if a Christian were to drop his Bible, that it should automatically, when it hits the floor, open to the book of Romans because it is that important that that's where we should be spending large amounts of time in. As an example of how God has used this book, in the summer of 386 A.D., there was a man named Augustine, whose mother was a Christian, who wanted um, Augustine to become a Christian. He knew about Christianity. He was given the books of the Bible. Um, but he loved his sin. He lived a very sinful life of drinking, of wine, women, and song. And in August of 386, he sat in this little park in his backyard, feeling lost, completely separated from God. And he heard a little voice of a boy in the next yard over, singing a little sing-song ditty, take up the book and read. Take up the book and read. And he happened to have next to him the Bible. And he opened the Bible, and he read this. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Romans 13, 13 to 14. Through the power of God's word, he gained faith to give his whole life to Christ. And believe me, much of what we who hold the Reformed theology has flowed directly from his fingers. August of 1513, there was a monk lecturing on the book of Psalms to seminary students. But his inner life was nothing but turmoil. And in his studies, he came across Psalm 31.1 that said, In thy righteousness deliver me. This passage confused this monk. How could God's righteousness do anything but condemn him to hell as a righteous punishment for his sins? This monk kept thinking about Romans 1.17, which says, The righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. The monk went on to say that night, Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sure mercy, he justifies us by faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through the open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. Martin Luther was born again, and the Reformation began in his heart. May 1738. A failed minister and missionary reluctantly went to a small Bible study where someone read aloud from Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. That was the Bible study. He had this to say. While he was describing Martin Luther, the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. An assurance was given me to that he had taken away my sins even mine. John Wesley was saved that night in London. Martin Luther praised Romans. He said, It is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect 
gospel. The absolute epitome of the gospel. John Calvin said of the book of Romans, whenever anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scriptures. Samuel Coleridge, an English poet and literary critic, said Paul's letter to Romans is the most profound work in existence. Frederick Goddard, an 18th century Swiss theologian, called the Book of Romans the cathedral of the Christian faith. And G. Campbell Morgan said Romans was the most pessimistic page of literature upon which your eyes will ever rest. And at the same time, it is the most optimistic poem in which your ears will ever listen. This is the book of Romans. This is why I want to spend time personally in the book of Romans. And I'm hoping that we will gain greater insights into who the Lord is in studying it. So, if you will turn to Romans 1, and please stand as you're doing so. Our text today is going to be taken from the first sentence in the book of Romans, which is verses 1 through 7. Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. Father, I pray that your word would come alive in our hearts today. And Father, that um, as we begin studying through this letter, that we would grasp to a greater degree the love that you have shown to us, your children, through your son, Jesus Christ through your apostles, and through the giving of your word to us. Father, this is something that I am completely inadequate to do. Um, it is something that no man can actually do. That we, just, we are relying on you, we're relying on your spirit to do the work that only he can do. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this has been called the greeting part of the book of Romans. And more often than not, it is rushed through to get to what we consider the meat of the book. But Paul never just threw out words for no reason at all. He always had a reason for what he did, including writing this first sentence. I think that as we study through this sentence that we will find that there's meat here as well. But the problem is, is that this 
our time, our generation has been, has been called the most enlightened time of all of human history. Our information is doubling every 18 months. That's an amazing thing. All, you take all information that is known about everything, and it doubles every 18 months. But at the same time, our attention span has gone down to about 15 minutes. And most people have no ability or even stomach for logic, for reasoning, or for actually thinking through issues. We want sound bites. We're told that, especially preachers, you hear this all the time, that, man, you better get to the point quickly. You got about 15 minutes, and then, you know, you need to let everybody go, because, especially when it gets close to that noon hour. Um, so, because of that, the gospel has just been shrunk down to nothing. Matter of fact, when we're asked to describe God, our answers are pretty short and anemic. We'll say something like, God is awesome. Um, or, well, God is sovereign. But when, even when we're asked about, what is the gospel? More often than not, when you ask someone who, what the gospel is, they'll give you their testimony. Or, they'll give you an acronym, and they'll say, well, the gospel is God's riches that Christ has been. See, Paul didn't suffer our uh, deficiency in, in thought or attention span. He, like his generation, were raised on thinking, on logic, on rhetoric. And Paul had the intent of writing this letter to the Christians in Rome. He, he had that intent to introduce himself, which is most of this first, um, this first sentence is an introduction of himself and his apostolic calling. But more importantly than that, he wanted to magnify God to them through the right explanation of the gospel. Paul wrote long and complex sentences, and they're quite common in his writings, especially when he was writing about the gospel. For instance, if you go to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, one sentence, I'll read it to you. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the kind, his kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end, um, that who were the first to hope in Christ would be the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, 
who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Talk about a run-on sentence. So, my intent today is to take this first sentence and I want to dissect it, pull it apart, and see if we can get some meat off the bones and see what kind of meat we can get off the bones. And so I'm going to actually do expositional preaching a little bit different. I'm actually going to take, there are going to be just words that I take as we go through it instead of the whole passages. I'm going to start with the, the first word, Paul. This is identified as who wrote this letter. Paul. No Timothy, no Silas, no brothers. Just Paul. This, like the book of Ephesians, is the only, um, those two are the only epistles that are just written from him. They're also the only two epistles that are written to a church for a specific reason. It wasn't because there was heresy going on. It wasn't because, or to deal with um, issues within the church, like in Corinthians. Romans and the, uh, the epistle to the, the church at Ephesus were written primarily concerning the gospel. And for that reason, that's why it was addressed from Paul alone. A servant of Christ Jesus. Paul's first words as he lay on the dust on the ground on Damascus Road, blinded by Christ, were, Who are you, Lord? And upon hearing the reply, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you have persecuted, his very next words were, what shall I do? The persecutor persecutor of of what he thought was this blasphemous sect had finally met the Lord that he had been so um, zealous to defend. Now Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And yet Paul, James, Jude, and John all refer to themselves as slaves. That word that, that is translated in our Bible as servant is doulos, The proper translation is slave. I fear that those that take issue with being called a slave of Christ don't understand the freedom that we have in Christ. And possibly they're still in bondage to their sinful nature. Or they just want to be politically correct. And in doing so, demonstrate a greater fear of man than do of God. He's called the nexus, called to be an apostle. Paul used the word called three times in this sentence and then three more times in the letter of the Romans. The meaning behind the word is not an offer or an invitation. It's not like someone calling you on the phone that you look at and you're like, nope, don't want to take that. Um, Paul was called. He could not not have answered the call any more than he could not not have been an apostle. These were predestined positions that God has ordained for him from the beginning of all creation. We should take comfort in the sovereignty of God in calling the elect to himself. And we should do that because he calls us specifically. There is no leftover blood that is just given to some people like, man, well, I guess we'll just save this guy or this lady. We know Ephesians 2.10 tells us, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So when we see far-reaching ministries like John Piper or John MacArthur, um, and we can see how God has gifted them, 
oftentimes we're tempted to actually idolize these people. But that's just our sinful nature coming through. We should look beyond these men, beyond the ministries, beyond the giftings, and understand that all that is a calling from God. These are all just gifts from God to those men for his church. And the same holds true for all of us. We are not just randomly picked. We are called for a purpose. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a member of it. 1 Corinthians 12.27 Every part of your body is important. I don't know if you guys figured that out or not. Sometimes we just don't actually think about how important things are like ears or nose until we start having issues with them. But they are important. And you may think that, man, in the body of Christ, I really don't have a big part to play. I mean, it's not like I'm the head. Um, I just feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm just a a finger. I'm just a finger in the body of Christ, and that's not that big a deal. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't have all their fingers. But fingers matter. I'll show you how. Let me illustrate this. If you guys have ever seen my left knee, um, I have a scar that runs like that. Um, it's not a scar from going to the surgeon and having a knee replacement done. Now, this was self-inflicted. Now, 20 years ago, um, I was on the side of a hill in Oregon cutting down trees. And I cut this tree down, and as it started to fall, it hit a snag, which is another tree branch, and it bounced back. Now, my brain functioned properly. It said, run. My legs functioned properly. I turned left or right and started running uphill away from that tree. The problem was is that as I was running uphill, your legs go up, your body goes down. I had a chainsaw in my hands, which really shouldn't have been a problem, except my finger failed to let go of the trigger. So that's how I got my scar. So if you feel like all I am is a finger in the body of Christ and you have no importance, understand that you do have importance. We all have importance. God did not save any of us for an unimportant reason. But having said that, the effectual call of God on his children is not what Paul was actually speaking about, about in this. He actually speaks about that in verse 6 and 7. The call he's talking about here is to the office of apostle. He, like the rest of the apostles, were called by God. They didn't choose to be apostles. There wasn't an election that they won. They were called. And there's never been anyone since Paul who has been called as an apostle. This is an important point to be clear on. The Lord chose the apostles to give direct revelation for the foundation and framework of his church. They would be the ones that he would use to pen what we call the New Testament. The summary and conclusion of the scriptures that he given through this old, um, the prophets of old. And the Bible is a closed book, meaning that there are no new, nor will there ever be, further revelations from God. In the same way that the office of of apostle is closed. If it wasn't that way, this letter, no matter how doctrinally sound, would have no meaning to us, really. There are archives, there are just 
you know, um, museums filled with theologically correct letters and part, uh, uh, parts of letters from um, historians and theologians that really mean nothing to us at all because they aren't the inspired word of God. But let's back to our verses. He says, set apart for the gospel. Now, being set apart is not a separate thing from being called. It's just a clarification of what that calling contained. The calling of Paul as a Christian and apostle included the most far-reaching ministry and missions um, event that the man has ever seen. At the core of this letter was a desire to ensure that these saints in Rome, like all men, would know that, um, that uh, they, they, I'm sorry, would know and never forget the good news of the gospel. He unpacks what he meant by seeing by being set apart in, uh, for God in Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Ephesians 3 says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in my brief, before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which, is, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by his holy, uh, to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be now known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose by which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulation on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Verse 2 now. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So just as being set apart was just an explanation or clarification of what being called meant, Paul now begins to unpack what the gospel of God is. Now let's remember that when Paul wrote this, the only scripture that he had was the Old Testament. That was it. The importance of that is, um, is really actually, it's not something that's just new to our age, but there are people like Andy Stanley who is now coming out and saying that we need to unhitch ourselves and the gospel from the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments no longer apply to Christians. We need to just get rid of it, not even study it. But this is something that's impossible to do, for they contain all the promises and covenants of God in them. They show us the shadows of the new kingdom. They contain all the prophecies of the now risen Messiah. But there has been this gradual but steady decline in basic biblical and even historical knowledge of Christians. C.H. Spurgeon recognized this in his generation. Martin Lloyd-Jones saw the same thing happen in his generation right after Spurgeon. 
and unfortunately it's gotten worse than ours. To many professing Christians, we have little to no understanding of the Old Testament. If anything, it's like a sports reel or a highlight sports reel that you see like on one of the news networks. It really has no meaning at all. They can tell you the highlights, uh, you know, so there was like creation and then the, this guy Goliath and David and uh, a flood was in there and there was a boat in there and then a big fish. But they really have no understanding or concept of what the Old Testament actually contains. And they're told that the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, is separate from the God of the New Testament. God the Father in the Old Testament, God the Son in the New Testament, Old Testament was all about law, New Testament is all about grace. Completely false. It's all about grace. Grace starts in Genesis 1-1 and continues all the way through to Revelation. Without the Old Testament, we would lose much of the knowledge of who God is in his attributes and of his gospel. We'd have no record of his covenant-keeping goodness, of his long-suffering towards men, of his creation of the universe, or his salvation plan. Paul hitched his gospel firmly to the Old Testament. Concerning his son, here's the core of the gospel that Paul's unpacking. It's all about Jesus. The Bible, the gospel, all of it. Here is the fulfilled promises of, of those, prophets, those prophets in the scriptures. And apart from Jesus, the only message from heaven toward, coming towards men would be woe. You can't preach the gospel without preaching Jesus. You won't be generally vilified if you talk about God in a generic terms in our generation. But when you tell people the gospel truth, that there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ, kind of look out. It was the same thing in the first century where Paul was at. They could speak about God very freely. Matter of fact, at that point, God was very generic. God was very personal. He was even human. They said Caesar was God. So when you spoke about God, it was no big deal to them. But when you said that Jesus was Lord, and in him alone is God, you better look out. You found yourself in hot water at that point, or maybe even hot oil. Despite this, Paul was very specific in his preaching. We can find record of that preaching in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. Again, the Old Testament. That he was buried, that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. Again, the Old Testament. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he continues explaining the gospel when he says, um, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, Paul could have used anybody within the, the lineage of uh, Jesus to actually talk about here instead of David. Some people think that the reason that he actually said that he descended from David is um, throw him back to a, a messianic term, son of David. But the truth is, is that Paul was using this in a very specific manner. And that manner and that meaning was that 
Christ was completely human. David died. David was human. Everyone in his lineage died. They were all human. Christ was human. Again, this is something that's very offensive to people when you talk about the humanity of Christ. He was one hundred. That he was completely, totally human. That is very offensive to people because they say, "How can that be? How can God actually come and be completely human? Because if he was completely human, then he faced the same things that we face. And this is the point of why he came as a human. He faced every single trial and." Um, that we face, and yet he did it sinlessly so that he could be the spotless Lamb of God, and he could take our place and make propitiation for our sins. He was 100% human. But here comes the contrast to that. For he says in verse 4, And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. When the Bible speaks of Jesus as the Son of God, it doesn't mean the same thing as it speaks of um, David being the son of Jesse. There was a time in the life of Jesse when there was no David. But there was never a time in history when there was God the Father and not God the Son. They've always been together. So what does it mean when the Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God? It means that he is God. The truth is emphasized throughout the Bible. Colossians 2.9 says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Philippians 2.6 Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And you can say, well, that was just both, those are both Paul's writings, so maybe it was just Paul that thought this. Well, let's go to the Gospels. John 1.1 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And just to make sure that we understand that, he says the same thing in John 1 2. He was in the beginning with God. And Paul reiterates the eternality of Jesus when he speaks of him in Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all in the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we see here, just like in, the ver in our verses in Roman, that Paul brings up the tension between the two natures of Jesus. He says in verse 15 that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Um, and the, the, fir excuse me, the firstborn that Paul is talking about is the eternal deity of Christ, being truly God, who can't die, while at the same time, he's truly man, being the firstborn from the dead, resurrected and ascended to the throne which he had descended from through whom all creation is reconciled to God. And he finally finishes verse 4 here. Jesus Christ our Lord. For Paul, there was no separating the good news of God from Jesus the Christ. 
This could be evidenced by the fact that more, no less than 10 times he uses Jesus Christ our Lord in the book of Romans. Within this title is a full and succinct gospel for who Jesus is. Jesus, his personal name, which when translated means Yeshua, or Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation, or we just can say Savior. Christ, this is not his last name. It's not even a title so much as it explains that he is God's anointed one. And then finally, Lord. His esteem placed above all created things, as we just read in Colossians verse and the Colossian verses, and Lord over all things in heaven and earth. Acts 10 tells us that, verse 36. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now this is the first time, uh, first um, of two times in this sentence that Paul uses the word grace. And after each time he uses that word grace, he follows it up with a noun, which is a kind of odd way of actually putting sentences together. But these aren't grammatical mistakes, and they were actually placed this way on purpose. Paul knew that all life is a gift of God, grace. No one earns life, nor the beauty of creation. These, like the abilities and physical attributes that are given all men, are a grace from God. But common grace wasn't the grace that Paul was talking about here. The grace that he meant is the unearned, unmerited favor of God in the appropriation of the blood of his Son on the elect of God. Without it, all works are dead works. All titles are useless, including apostle. And no work has any eternal value. The second noun following grace is apostleship. Now, remember, this is still, he's still just speaking of himself. He hasn't even actually addressed the Romans at all. So, he's not talking about apostleship as if it is an open office that anybody can get. This is what we can say um, an apostolic we. Calvin, on his commentary on this verse, says, if you prefer to say you can actually put in, I have received grace to be an apostle. And it would mean the same thing. Paul knew that his calling as an apostle was, wasn't because of anything that he brought to the table. It wasn't because of his zeal. It wasn't because of his extensive learning. It was all of God. It was completely grace. We Christians in this generation have a tainted view of grace. A lot of times we make it like a get-out-of-jail-free card. And quite often, we laugh at the Roman Catholics and wonder how anyone of them could have ever believed that indulgences were from God. Indulgences were those things that you could buy from the church so that you could go ahead and continue sinning and still be right with God. And we're like, how could that ever even be? And yet, and yet, there are people who think that they walk an aisle, raise a hand, they can then go out and continue living a sinful life and be called a Christian. That wasn't the grace of God that Paul had in mind, nor any of the apostles. The grace that they were given and preached had a specific purpose, one that he explains in the second half of verse 5. 
to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul uses the same phrase, obedience of faith, at the end of this letter in chapter 16, verse 26. And just as in this verse, he uses it there as a descriptor of what faith looks like. Many people see this word obedience and they automatically think about works. Which it does. But these aren't works unto salvation. John MacArthur puts it like this. It is not that faith plus obedience equals salvation, but that obedient faith equals salvation. True faith is verified in obedience. Obedient faith proves itself, whereas disobedient faith proves itself false. What Dr. MacArthur is getting at is an aspect of what Paul actually did mean um, that you can't be regenerate and not be changed. This is a truth that's sidestepped by many Christians. There are many people, like I said, that they believe that um, they can be saved and just go ahead and living however they want. They call themselves carnal Christians, and they take comfort in that. They have no love of God's word. They have no love of God's people, but yet they claim to be Christians. They're not. And what Dr. MacArthur said concerning obedience is part of what was included in what Paul was saying here, but only part. The obedience of faith that Paul was meaning is that is much more specific. It's the clear command to preach Jesus in the proclamation of his gospel through the making of his disciples. That's something that we misunderstand, is that we actually think that the call on our Christian life is that we need to go preach the gospel. Well, that's partly true. The verse in Matthew actually says that we are to go into all the world and make disciples, not converts. But within that discipleship process is making converts. And it doesn't stop, though, when you preach the gospel the first time. We need the gospel preached to us continually, our whole life. We can never get past the cross. That's where so many of us go off the rails in what we think is discipleship. We think that it has to be these programs and that we need to give people 10 steps to a better life and how to be a better husband or how to be a better wife or a better businessman. The fact is, is that we need to know Christ and Him crucified, nothing else. But let's not gloss over the purpose of the obedience of faith among the nations. It's not for the nations. Our obedience is not, if we bring these people into obedience, it's not for the people so that they're better. Paul very clearly says is that the obedience is for the sake of his name. This is not to imply the obedience of people as anything to his name or makes it more valid. His name is his character. It is who God is, the eternal I am, who is worthy of all praise and honor. So let's be clear. Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. The preaching of him as the Son of God, the Savior of the elect, the only hope for all men is at the core of the Christian life. Paul bookends this letter with this truth, both in chapter 1 and then again at the end of his letter. Romans 16, verses 25 through 26, he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and to the preaching of Jesus Christ, 
according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, and to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ, Am. amen. And finally, we come to the apostolic greeting. So everything up to this in this sentence has always has been about Paul and to his, apostle, his apostleship and to the gospel. Now he comes to the greeting. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to his saints. This letter was written to the saints in Rome. It wasn't written to everyone in Rome. At that time, for everyone in Rome, at any time. It was written to a specific family. This is true of every part of the Bible. While the Bible is given to men to profit us, it's not given to all men to understand. You guys have, there's a lot of large families around here, the Wests and the Hills, and you guys have family um, traditions and, and things that go on within your family that you guys all know about, and you'll say things that your family knows, and you're like, oh yeah. Well, to the outsiders in the family, it means nothing. That's what the Bible is like to those that aren't saved. So we should never, ever get upset when we hear people who are supposed to have this PhD or be some theologian start ripping the Bible apart. We should not let that get to us. The fact is, is that outside of the Spirit of God, no man can understand the Word of God. Ever. It's just going to offend them. Or they're going to try and make it say something to their felt needs. The people that Paul was writing to in Rome were those that are loved by God and more specifically called by him to be saints. They're the elect. Now, election, again, is one of those biblical doctrines that's not popular. The natural man hates the doctrine of election. They hate the fact that we say that they can't come to God on their own. They can't make that choice. But as the elect of God that this letter was written to, they are the ones that are loved of God who are called to be saints. One way that you're going to know that you are of the called of the elect is your desire to actually read his word. This is his love letter to his people. The desire to read his word should be something that is instilled to us by the Holy Spirit. And if it's not, Man, only I can tell you is pray and ask God to give that to you. Because if you don't have the desire for his word, I fear for your soul. So look again at who this is written to, though, and how they're described. It says, who are loved by God. Did you hear that? This isn't a generic love. This isn't like Jesus loves the little children. That is not biblical. Who are, who are loved by God. It's a specific love. When he calls you, when he called you, he called you because he specifically loved you. When he died on the cross, he specifically died for you. That's the love of God.
for us. I don't understand that. It's amazing. I mean, how can God love me? I know me. And, I, and I'm sinful, and I understand that I really honestly don't know me to the depths of how bad I really am. And yet, I don't understand how God can love me. And yet, I'm told that he does. And I'm not just told that he does, but I'm shown that he does. By his perfect son offering his life for me. And whenever God sees me, he sees Christ. Saints, that's one of the things I want you to understand is that there are often many, many times that you will hear that voice of accusation in your ear about you being a sinner. You're a sinful man, a sinful woman. You are not worthy to come into the throne room of grace and pray to the Lord. You are not worthy to come and become part of a, a church family because all you do is bring them down. You have to understand that when you hear that voice, that voice is coming from behind you. That voice is Satan yelling in your ear the truth of who you are. But God stands before you. God the Father stands before you. And between God the Father and you stands his son. And his son says, he's mine. This one is mine. And because of that, they're righteous. They're perfect. They're holy. And God says, enter into my rest. When we understand the union that we have with Christ, we can acknowledge everything that Satan says about us is true to a degree. And yet at the same time, we have a loving Father that would do anything for us. And he has done everything for us. So this truth brings us to the end of the opening greeting and of the sermon. And he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the second time that Paul uses that word grace. And again, he pairs it with another noun. The first time he paired it with apostleship, which was one of the byproducts of grace. Direction, calling, purpose. This time, grace is paired with peace. The desire for peace is something that all humans have. We as a human people have tried constantly to come up with peace. After the First World War, well, before the First War, World War I, so much was going on that was looking like, man, utopia is coming. We're going to be able to beat our swords into plowshares and we're really going to have peace. That didn't work out so good. So then humans have changed the understanding of peace to mean, well, it means inner tranquility. So if you're seeking peace, what you need is to do yoga, meditate, contemplate, because you can find peace within yourself. The truth is, and this is one of the things that we're finding within our generation, um, especially the younger generation, is that they don't want People understand is that the more you, you get into yourself and the more meditation you do, the more you understand just how sinful you are and there is no peace within us. The reason for that is that we are at enmity with God. There can't be peace outside of Jesus Christ at all. That's why 
peace is paired with grace, and it comes after grace. Because outside of grace, there is no peace. You must have God's grace to have any peace in life. That is what makes the good news so good. Jesus Christ is the amazing grace that Paul desired his saints to know. Because of his apostleship, we have this letter. We know that these same same truths apply to all Christians for all time. All who have been called. All um, who can have peace through his son of David. Through Jesus the Christ. Who for the sake of the elect has given his life. Dear saints, I want to leave you with the same greeting that Paul left these Romans, these uh, Christians in Rome 2,000 years ago. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sufficiency of your grace to us who are nothing more than sinners. Father, I pray that there are any here who don't know you, Father, who have not bent the knee to you, who have not submitted to you, Lord. I pray that they would do that now. Father, that they would cry out for your salvation. Lord, do that which only you can do. Save sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.